Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. John 1, 1 1-18. So there are things in life that are just too good to be true, aren't there? Like, for example, have you ever had a Reese's peanut butter cup? Those things are amazing. I absolutely love Then my wife will bring or buy some from the store and bring them back home. One day, the next day, I'll have them all gone, right? I'll have to get more. I think I've had like 30, not in my life, but like in one sitting. That's my record, 30 Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love them so, so much. So much I love those things. If I were to make a list of, you know, top 10 things in my life that are just too good to be true, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups would probably be at number 10. Somewhere in the middle, you would have things like the mountains. I actually love the mountains. Going to the mountains is so much fun. I love uh, sunsets and sunrises. They're amazing. They're so beautiful. I love the way fireflies in the summer will just light up a hayfield at night. I think it's just too good to be true. Top of my list, though, would be things with different people in my life that I love. My wedding day would definitely be up there at the top. Uh, the day that I uh, heard that we had been matched with a little boy who's going to be born in Georgia, we got that call from our adoption agency. We went down to Georgia, and there in the halls of the hospital, we met our son, Willie, for the very first time, and it was just too good to be true. I loved it. He was beautiful. And then he took his stocking cap off of him. I was like, he's a triangle. What happened to that kid, right? He's going to be on the next episode of Phineas and Ferb. I was not ready. It was like too bad to be true almost in that moment. Ten days after we finalized uh, Willie's adoption last December, my wife, unbeknownst to me, took a pregnancy test and she shared those results with me and we brought a home video uh, to share with you. So if you check it out on the screen. No way. Are you serious? 
No way. Are you serious? What? I just did just What? Oh my gosh. Things like that that just are too good to be true are sometimes hard to believe, hence my you know, refrain. Are you serious? Are you serious? And some things can just be exhausting, hence my wife's at the very end, right? <laughs> Two boys, 15 months apart is going to be a little bit of a challenge for, 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 for us. But I just think it's too good to be true sometimes. But we know it's true. We have to believe that it's true. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've been going through uh, the four Gospels. Our series is called Portrait of Jesus, looking at the way the different Gospel authors portray Jesus in their Gospels. The first week, Elijah did a fantastic job walking through the Gospel of Mark, showing that Jesus is a servant. He did not come to be served by people. He came to serve people. Second week, he talked through the book of Luke, showing that Jesus is a friend to the friendless, those who are outsiders, outcasts, the hurting and the hopeless. Jesus brings them in. Last week, we were in Matthew. Uh, Jesus is a king full of authority and compassion. But if that's all that Jesus is, He's really not that much different from people who have walked the earth. There are billions of people today. There have been billions, and dare I say there will be billions more people who walk the earth, people who serve others, people who cross racial and socioeconomic lines to go befriend other people. There have even been kings with good authority and with deep compassion. So if that's all Jesus is, just another one of us, it doesn't change all that much about our life. John's claim, though, the portrait that John paints of Jesus in his gospel is so audacious that if it is true, it changes literally everything that we know about Jesus and about our lives. John's gospel is full of one word, and that word is believe. John has this word in his gospel over and over again. This word is used so many times in the New Testament, and 50% of its occurrences are in the gospel of John. Conservative estimates, depending on the root word that you use, would say that John uses this word believe over 100 times in his 21 chapters. He uses it a lot because his claim about Jesus is just, too good to be true, or so it seems. And so he asks us to believe his claim that he makes about Jesus. Because if we believe it, it changes everything for us. John is the most clear of the four authors as to why he's writing his gospel. In the second to last chapter, he writes this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The title of the portrait that John paints with his gospel is this, Jesus is God. He's not just man. Jesus is God. And with the first stroke of his brush in John chapter 1, verse 1, he begins to paint Jesus in this light. He writes, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. When he says the word, he's referring to Jesus himself. And make no mistake, John is intentional with all language here. When John writes verbatim, in the beginning, 
He's pointing us back to the very first words of Scripture in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He wastes no time in getting the identity of Jesus to the forefront of his gospel. John is not the kind of guy that you would invite to a surprise party because he would ruin the surprise right out of the gate. You would invite him to the party and he would go tell that very person who you're throwing the party for. He's not subtle. He can't keep a secret. He's like, guys, Jesus was God. He is God. He will forever be God. Jesus is God and I'm just excited to tell you about it. He doesn't build it up. He doesn't play it out. He just says it in one verse. Jesus is God. And it's so beautiful. He writes again, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Jesus is God. And maybe the most shocking claim that John makes about Jesus is that God became man. Verse 14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Now, the phrase one and only is used to describe Jesus, but we know that other people have claimed to be God in flesh. Other men who have walked this earth have claimed to be God himself. Now, I have a guy who's in my family. We call him Uncle Mike. Uncle Mike is not actually my uncle. I think he may be my dad's second cousin. He's like that person in your family who you're like, I don't really know why you're at Thanksgiving and Christmas every year, but I guess we're glad to have you at the same time. You're welcome to the family, right? That's my Uncle Mike for our family. My Uncle Mike, was he was in the Air Force. He was a fighter pilot during Vietnam. And when I was younger, I was really intrigued by this because I knew he served as a fighter pilot. And so I would want to know about his experience. And so I would ask my Uncle Mike to tell me, hey, what was it like to be a fighter pilot? And he would look at me and say, hey, if I told you, I have to kill you. Okay with that? And I was like, who invited this guy to be a part of our family? Like, you can't be saying that to eight-year-olds, right? So as I got older, Uncle Mike began to share a little bit more with me, and I realized that uh, his joke or his refrain that he would use is really just to shield my young heart and mind from the horrors and carnage of war. But one of the stories that he told me is actually not about Vietnam. It was about an event I had heard in history, and I did not know he had taken part in it. Back in the 70s, there was a man named Jim Jones, and among other things, he claimed to be a god. He had convinced a group of people, over 900 of them, to move from California to the country of Guyana in South America. And he did many crimes against these people, for he was a phony and a fraud. And when he was being found out, his most heinous crime was that he convinced or really forced over 900 people to drink a punch laced with poison that led to their murder. My Uncle Mike was one of the pilots from the United States that had to fly down and retrieve the bodies of the men, women, and children murdered, massacred at the hands of Jim Jones. It's the greatest loss in a single moment of American lives before 9-11. And he told me this story. I was more convinced than ever in this moment that there may be many who claim to be God, but there is only one true God and he does not steal life. He does not destroy life. He gives it in abundance. This is Jesus. Jesus is God. Now, but we can admit in this room, it is a little bit weird, right? To say that we believe in God. We believe in the supernatural. We believe that our God put flesh on and came down here. What makes our claim to our God so much more believable, if you will, 
than the claims of all the other people who have claimed to be God. Simple. Proof. You could say like this, they talk the talk, but they cannot walk the walk. Jesus had proof to claim his deity, his identity. And in the Gospel of John, he gives us those proofs. The Gospel of John is kind of formatted like an interstate. Now, we come from all different parts of the four-state area, but we gather in the state of Missouri. And if you were to travel from Joplin to St. Louis, east on I-44, you would pass a whole lot of signs. John gives signs in his gospel. When you drive on I-44, you're going to pass signs that point to things, destinations like a giant rocking chair or a ball of yarn, destinations like the world's biggest candy store, fudge and fantastic caverns. And when you follow these signs, right, you're going to end up at the destination to which they point. John's gospel operates in the same way. It's a roadmap to what? What's the destination? Belief. And not just belief but life in Jesus. I want to read his purpose again. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So what are the signs? Let's take a a trip down the Gospel of John. Sign number one is found in chapter two. This is where Jesus turns gallons of water into gallons of wine. And on the surface, it doesn't seem that significant, does it? It's one liquid to another. It's not a healing or a resurrection like he will perform later. So what's so significant? Well, an abundance of wine in the Old Testament was an abundance of God's blessing and presence in the life of the Israelites. So with the first sign that he performs, he's saying, I am God and I am for you. The second sign is he heals an official's son. And this sign is important because it shows the power of his word. Jesus did not lay his hands on this boy to heal him like he did with a lot of the other miracles. He simply spoke and this boy was healed. This will remind John's readers of the beginning when God created the world. He did not craft it like Plato with his hands. He spoke and things came into being. Jesus spoke and this young boy was healed. The third miracle, the third sign in the Gospel of John, Jesus heals this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And he heals him beside this pool. It was called the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda, there was a belief from a false religion that an angel would stir up the waters and the first person who would get in the waters after they were stirred would be healed of whatever their infirmity was. And so you had all kinds of people laying around this pool, paralyzed, blind, mute, skin disease, lying near the pool at the hopes that the water would be stirred and that they would be the first in it. This man was never able to get into the water. But grace for him, God in flesh, showed up not to stir waters to watch a frenzy, but to heal. And he healed the man of his paralysis. Only God could do that. The fourth and fifth signs actually work together. They're in chapter uh, six of the gospel. The the fourth sign is where Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a small quantity of food. He multiplies it to feed the many. This would make John's readers think back to the time when the Israelites were in the wilderness and God provided manna from heaven for his people who were in need. Uh, the sixth sign, or I'm sorry, the fifth sign is Jesus walks on water. And they would think of the time that Moses led the Israelites through the Red Sea that God had parted right down the middle. They would remind them of the Old Testament and connect Jesus to the God of the Jews. 
the, uh, the sixth sign, Jesus heals a man who had been born blind. And I don't want to take too much creative liberty with this next statement, so I will be a little cautious. Jesus didn't often pick fights, but when he did, he was kind of like the Dos Equis man. When he did, he often picked fights with the religious leaders on the religious day known as the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man that life might be refreshed and rejuvenated and the religious leaders were using it to make it hard on people to truly live. And so Jesus, God himself, comes in on his day, the Sabbath day created by God and he starts giving life to this man who had been born blind. And the religious leaders are upset about this. They're mad that Jesus is doing this. Why? Because he is breaking their laws their way of life. But Jesus did not come to submit to their life. He came to give life to those who need it. And they questioned this guy who had been healed by Jesus. They actually questioned him twice. I want to read the second time they bring him in. John chapter 9, verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. They were talking about Jesus. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? I love it. He's taunting the religious leaders. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but... As for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. But if this man were not from God, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. One thing I know, I was blind. But now I see is the testimony of the man who had been born blind now can see because of Jesus. And this was true for him in a physical sense. John is hoping it becomes true for his readers in the spiritual sense that their eyes will begin to open to the identity of Jesus, that Jesus is God. And the seventh sign is just too potent for it not to be from God. For Jesus, in the seventh sign, raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. Only God could do that. These seven signs are proof that Jesus really is who he says he is. And at the end of his gospel, with the last verse he writes, John gives us this humbling statement about the man who we're reading about. He says in John 21, verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So the stage is set. Jesus is God. God became man. But the question remains, why did he come to earth? Let me me make one thing clear this morning. If you don't hear anything else, I want you to hear this. God became man that we might believe in him and by believing in him, find life in his name. Let me ask you a question. What makes you come alive? What puts that spark in your heart that makes, like you're tr- feel you, makes you feel like you're truly living? 
If you were to ask me that question, I'd probably start with my, uh, my family. I love my family. I love my friends. You would probably say the same thing. Some of you in the room would say competition, and I know you would because I've seen 40-year-old men at this church out on the slow-pitch softball field acting like they're 20 years old again, right? And they just don't have it like they used to. And they're going to have pulled hamstrings later on. And so that fire in their heart is going to become icy hot on their joints. You know what I'm saying? Like that's the reality for most of us men in this room. Some of us, it could be our hobbies in this area, hunting, fishing. For some of us, it may be a favorite sports team like the Kansas City Chiefs, right? Now, these things are not bad. They're just temporary. They're fleeting. There will come a day when family passes away, when friendships fade. I already made the joke about guys whose competitive spirits don't match their bodies. We're not always going to get the big buck or the big fish. And man, when it seems like we have every chance in the world to win the Super Bowl, our offensive line can't block and receivers are dropping passes that hit him in the face mask, right? I'm sorry to bring it up, but it's true. These things are temporary. Somebody's mad over there. These things are temporary. And temporary things can never satisfy eternal desires. Our heart was made for eternity. We were made for eternity. And temporary things can't bring us back to life. This is why C.S. Lewis writes, If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I mean, this world has nothing to offer you except the Messiah that it killed, buried, and then lost in resurrection by the power and grace of God. Blaise Pascal writes, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus came. This is why God became man, to make us alive again. John chapter 3. Jesus is having a conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus. I want to pick up in verse 2. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Uh, How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Nicodemus is probably thinking what a lot of us think. But Jesus is not speaking about being born again of the flesh. He's talking about being born again of the spirit, having our souls come back to life. For the consequence of sin on our souls is death and destruction. Our our souls are never fully satisfied until they're fully satisfied in God. Maybe the greatest scheme of the enemy, the devil, is making us think that our sin can bring us back to life when in reality it only takes us closer and closer to death. This is why Jesus came, to bring us back to life. And how did he do it? John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son... That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And too many people have too angry of a view of God. And yes, I know God's wrath against sin is real and his judgment 
is coming. But I hang on to the hope of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, which reminds us that God is patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance, to a knowledge of Jesus and life in him. John chapter 3, 16 says, whoever, whoever believes in him. And that's good news for those of us in this room because we fall into the whoever. Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. Doesn't matter your skin color. Doesn't matter how how well or how bad you have lived your life. God sent his son, Jesus, for you. And the next chapter, John chapter 4, tells the story of a woman that Jesus should have avoided, but he didn't. John chapter 4, verse 4 says this, Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. And Joseph's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now you may know this about Jesus. His ethnicity was Jewish. And the Jewish people had a common enemy. Like there is today, different groups of people don't like one another. The Jews did not like the Samaritans and the Samaritans did not like the Jews. In fact, they hated each other. This made travel for Jewish people really difficult because Jewish people live both north and south of Samaria, right in the middle. And so a lot of Jewish people, when they would travel, they would travel around Samaria, increasing their distance and time traveled, all to avoid a group of people that they did not like, but not Jesus. John chapter 4, verse 4 gives us a hint right out of the gate about Jesus. He has to go through Samaria, which is literally not true. Because we know from so many other Jewish people who've traveled that he could have gone around Samaria. But he goes to Samaria because there's someone there he needs to meet. Rather, there's someone there who needs to meet him. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She is a woman who has been married and divorced five times. And the man whom she lives with currently is not her husband. John is painting her in this light to illustrate to his readers that she is a sinful woman. More than that, she is a sinful Samaritan woman. This woman Jesus should have avoided, but he doesn't. He goes straight to her. What is a godly man? What is God himself doing at this well? He's waiting on us. We are this woman. And she comes to the well and he asks her a question, a simple question. Can I have a drink? Why does he ask this question? Two reasons. Number one, he's thirsty. He's been traveling. Number two, he's prompting a conversation that's going to end in metaphor to speak to her soul. For he asks about water. What he's really talking about in this conversation is sin and salvation. For he knows that this woman has been going to this well day after day after day. And this well is symbolism for death and destruction. Every day she goes and tries to satisfy eternal desires with death and sin. And every time she does it, it leaves her longing for more. For it never truly satisfies her. And Jesus knows who he is. Jesus knows he's God and he knows he has something to offer this woman that will make her come alive again. And so he speaks to the woman and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Where can he get the living water? 
Ma'am, he does not need a bucket. He needs nothing to draw with. He doesn't even need a well. He does not have to go to a source for living water because he himself is the source. He himself is life, and he himself is offering it to whoever would drink it. And this is good news for us. The story in John chapter 4 is a smaller story to illustrate a much grander story. And it occurs in John chapter 19. It's what it's all been leading up to in the gospel of John. Jesus has been arrested and he's standing trial before Pilate, the Roman governor, the one who holds the keys to life and death in his hands. And John writes, it was the day before preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate says to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. What time did Jesus go to the well to meet the woman? Noon. What time does he stand before Pilate? Noon. And they take him away to be crucified. And later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled as he's hanging on the cross, Jesus said, I am thirsty. His request on the cross seems similar to his request at the well, doesn't it? And on the cross, the world offered him a temporary drink to a temporary desire. And on the cross, Jesus offered the world eternal satisfaction for the eternal desire as he died on the cross. When they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with the spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. And there's a physical meaning to this, but there's a spiritual one as well. The blood of God now covers the sinful earth. His flesh and his blood that he put on to become man has now been pierced by man and is now spilling out for the salvation of those very people. It almost, it almost seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Which is why John has to encourage us over and over and over again, believe, and by believing you will have life in him. Our high school students this week went to Tennessee for a church conference. Can you guess what book they studied while they were there? Gospel of John. They heard stories just like these stories, really the same stories. And there are many students, and I got a, I got a video on Thursday night. After I got done preaching here in our Thursday night service, I went home and opened up my phone, and there was a video of a young man named Dalton who heard these stories that you're hearing this morning, and he decided that he was going to put his faith, his belief in Jesus. And I was really glad they snapped this video and sent it my way. And I want to share with you. Would you turn your attention to the screens? Jesus is the son of the living God. Uh, do, you, do you take him to be your Lord and Savior? I do. Well, because of the confession of your faith, we will now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God came to us so that we could come to him. It's not in the Gospel of John, but it's by the same author in Revelation chapter 22. I want to read these words about our Jesus who offers life and the result of life. John writes, And the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, 
flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. For where living water goes, life springs up. And John's vision turns into invitation to those of us who hear it, that we might come to the God that came to us. For the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Let them come and find their life in Jesus. It's almost too good to be true, but it is true. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe? I do. Are you convinced? I am. But I know there may be people in this room who aren't there yet, and that's okay. This morning I was in my office praying over this sermon, and I was confessing to God that I just seem, I feel so inadequate to preach this gospel. How do you convince people that Jesus is God? I mean, I can talk about somebody who's a good person, who's kind, who serves others, who befriends the befriendless. I can talk about people like that. I can even talk about the history of the Jews and the awaited Messiah. But how do you convince people that Jesus is God and that he's for them? You know what God was reminding me as I prayed? It's not my job. These are his words. These are his signs. All I have to do is preach them. And so if you're struggling to believe, if you're struggling to be convinced, here's my encouragement to you. Read this gospel. Read it over and over and over again. And may the Holy Spirit prompt in you faith and belief. And my hope is that you would find life in Jesus because of your belief. Just like I have, just like Dalton has, just like many of the people in this room. But if this morning you're ready, if you're ready to put this belief into action and you're wondering, what, what do I do about it? The early church asked that same question and the apostle Peter responded, repent, turn from your sins and turn to Jesus and be baptized into him, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive life, life to the fullest and life for eternity. How does it work? God makes it work. I want to pray for us this morning. And after our worship service is over, if you would like to talk to a pastor, myself and many others would be out there in the lobby at the prayer center. And we would love to have a conversation with you about our God, about our Jesus. Father, I'm very grateful for the gospel of John. Father, this gospel is deeper than the deepest depths of the ocean. I don't know that myself or anybody else in this room will ever fully understand it until we get to meet John and meet you and talk about it. Father, it's also as shallow as a splash pad that the youngest among us can play in it safely. That we can see so clearly that you are God and see so clearly that although we don't deserve it, you love us and you sent your one and only son that any of us who believe in him would find life in him. Father, what we deserved is condemnation, but that's not why Jesus came. He came to save. 
The same Jesus that sat down by the well is the same Jesus that was nailed to the cross and you sent him to both places because you love us. And may that never escape our hearts. And may that always prompt more belief in you. Father, thank you for life. Life to the fullest and life for eternity. I pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.